0: Everybody, and welcome to this episode of Ocean, Ocean Science, Science Radio. Radio.
1: For February, we thought we'd do something a little special and slightly romantic. To tell you all about it, here is our special co-host from the Ocean Podcast, Strictly Fish Rap Science Radio Hour, Skylar Bear.
2: Hey guys, thanks for having me. So to celebrate Valentine's Day, for the rest of February, we will be releasing a series of episodes about the reproduction of sea life. We're calling it...
0: Ocean
2: Lovin'. Ocean Lovin'. Lovin.
1: To kick things off, we chatted with someone who knows a thing or two about the sex lives of ocean animals.
3: My name is Mara Hart, and I am the research director of a nonprofit called Future of Fish, and I work on trying to help find a better balance between people and the sea for sustainability.
2: Mara got her doctorate from Scripps Institute of Oceanography studying human impacts on coral reefs in the Caribbean in an unusual approach to understanding change on these reef systems by looking at the historical data as well as doing more traditional ecology work. And
3: I'm also author of the newly released Sex in the Sea, which is a popular science book that tries to engage a a larger audience in the issues of ocean conservation by talking about the direct link between sex and sustainability.
0: Sex and sustainability? Is this a Jane Austen book I missed somehow?
1: No. Think about it this way. Successful sex in the ocean is critical for sustainability. And from Mara's research, people are more intimately connected with the intimate acts of ocean life than we realize. There are many ways in which we've been disrupting the sex habits of marine life, creating challenges for sustainability.
3: So we all know that we have to have successful reproduction in order for there to be future generations, right? So sex and sustainability go hand in hand.
0: You know, that's a great point. So how did this book come about? Over
3: drinks, obviously. The idea for the book really crystallized um, when I was actually at a cocktail party, hanging out with a bunch of friends, and we were <laughs> we were lamenting the differences between men and women and how we can never really understand each other. And one of my female colleagues made the comment that she wished she could be a guy for a day, be in their mind, be in their bodies, know what they're thinking, know what's going on. And being the nerdy marine biologist, the comment I said was, "Oh yeah, if only we could all be parrotfish." And, of course, they all stopped and were staring at me, sort of saying, what are you talking about, Mara?
0: Parrotfish? What? What is she talking about?
3: Well, parrotfish, I explained, start as females when they're born, and then the individual will transition to a male later in life. So they really know what it's like from both both sides. Everybody was still listening and sort of giving me these strange looks, and I went on to explain that sex change is something that's really common in in the ocean. Oysters do it, shrimp do it, and that there are really significant repercussions of this because if you imagine you go and fish all the biggest fish, which we tend to like to do, in a population like parrotfish, you're taking out all the males, and that can really cause some problems when you're, you know, a female fish trying to find a date, right?
1: Right. Her fun party fact turned into a bigger conversation, and people were really asking questions and were deeply engaged.
3: And then later on that night, I overheard someone who I'd been talking to telling someone else, Did you know that fish change sex? Isn't that crazy? And I just thought, That's it. Sex. Everybody's curious about it. Nature has written the best stories in the ocean in the sense that the strategies there are just so wild and different than our own. Maybe if I write about sex strategies in the sea, And I do it in a way that's funny and engaging. It'll be a great segue into discussing how we're disrupting those sex lives and the sustainability consequences of that and what we can do to change the tide.
2: So after interviewing many experts and researchers in the field, she writes this incredible book that covers different species, has fun and interesting anecdotes, and finishes with a chapter on solutions, leaving the reader with a hopeful feeling and ready to make a real difference.
0: The book has a recommended soundtrack to get you in that ocean-loving mood, and was even on the Oprah Winfrey recommended reading list, which called it, and I'm quoting here, an oceanographic Kinsey report detailing the wet and wild world of aquatic coitus. So out of all of her research,
3: what's one of Mara's favorite stories? One of the more surprising stories would be the lobster. That's right, lobsters. These are Maine lobster, the ones with the big, the big claws that we love to eat. And even though they look like these giant armored tanks, <laughs> they are actually really quite romantic and a little bit kinky.
0: Kinky lobsters.
3: Just listen to the story. The best time for lobsters to mate is right after the female has molted, and the reason for that is because underneath the female's tail is a small pouch where the sperm is deposited, and right after when she molts, that pouch gets discarded with the rest of, of the shell, so she has a new, fresh, clean, empty pouch.
2: This is ideal for both the male and the female lobster. For the male, this means it's an opportunity for him to fill that entire pouch with his sperm, and he is not having to add his sperm to a pouch that might have sperm from other males where there could be some sperm competition. For the female, it means that if she mates right away and fills that
1: pouch up with one mating, it means that she can go off and not worry about mating again, and she can draw upon that sperm store to fertilize multiple batches of eggs.
0: Just as a note here, in researching for this ocean-loving series, this whole sperm storage thing is something we found occurs in many different ocean species. So mating right after the female molts seems like a win-win.
3: The problem is that for the female, right after she's molted, she's a soft-shelled animal. Her shell takes a few days to harden. She can barely even stand up. So she's extremely vulnerable. And male lobsters during mating season are complete brutes. They go around beating up and bullying anybody nearby as they defend these shelters. And this includes male-on-male sort of competition and, and combat, but also males will attack females. So the female's in this predicament where she wants to be near the biggest, baddest lobster on the block because he's probably got the best den, but he's also the toughest guy, and she has to present herself in this extremely vulnerable state. So what she does is she will approach the den of of this dominant male, cautiously, and she will sort of peek her head into the entranceway and shoot a stream of urine into his front door and then book it out of there before he can retaliate.
1: And she'll keep marking her territory day after day after day. Lobsters are weird. And by about a week...
3: he really is like a love potion. The, the scent of her sort of becomes intoxicating enough to him that it calms him down and it really transforms him into this receptive lover. So after a few days, he actually welcomes her into the den and the two of them will cohabitate. They'll live together in this den and hunt and kind of hang out for a few days. And then right before she can tell that she's going to molt, like within a few hours of molting, She goes around the front of the male and they go through this really cool process where he bows his head down in front of her and she stands up on her walking legs and takes her big claw and she taps him on one shoulder and then the other and they call it knighting. This process
2: really does look like a knighting ceremony and it is a surprisingly intimate
3: communication method. It's a signal to him that I'm about to molt. We're about to get it on, don't go anywhere. She then goes to the back of the den, he follows her, and as she moults, he kind of stands guard over her. And here's
1: where it gets tender.
3: He will wait until she's strong enough within a few hours of molting to sort of support herself a little bit. And then he goes behind her, and he will roll her onto her back and cradles her. In his walking legs, he braces himself on his big tail and the two big front claws and then lifts her up so that she's sort of lying in the hammock of his little walking legs and holds her up against him and then they mate there, belly to belly. So it's this really kind of uh, sort of salty and sweet combination of of a kinky golden shower sort of approach and then this very, very romantic, gentle sex act.
0: All right, that is rather sweet and kinky. So... We got lobsters down. What do we have next?
2: Next up, the ever-curious stomatopods.
0: Stomatopods?
4: Commonly known as manda shrimp. Ah, gotcha. My name is Roy Caldwell. I'm a professor of integrative biology at the University of California at Berkeley.
1: Roy studies crustaceans and octopus, but he's also been fascinated by stomatopods, or manda shrimp, with good reason.
4: The thing that's most unusual about stomatopods is the uh, striking appendage that they've evolved. It's one of the most potent mechanical weapons in the animal kingdom and uh, they're capable of killing an opponent in a single blow. Just about every aspect of their behavior has evolved around this deadly weapon system, which was initially evolved for feeding. They smash up prey and stab fish, things like that.
2: The mantis shrimp's claw is so powerful, but does it ever come into play in mating?
4: It does come into play, but oftentimes if things aren't going well and the male and female can't quite get together, They'll strike, usually the female will strike the male, but sometimes the male will strike the female. But it's usually a weaker strike, uh, not full out. It's more of a tap.
1: But wait, there's more to mantis strip mating habits.
4: There are species of mantis strip where males decorate the entrance of their burrow. Only males do it, and they pick up shells or pieces of colored pebble and line entrance of their burrow. This is a big species about a foot long that lives in Southern California called Hemiskola ansegura or californiensis. It's a very unusual stratified in that the males also have the ability to produce a song. It sounds like a low rumble, and we think that they call to attract females. There may be even a possibility that they... Uh, chorus like frogs the way they produce it is to vibrate the carapace so it's a very low frequency sound it sort of sounds like that is pretty cool but we should
0: also remember another amazing thing about mantis shrimp their fantastic vision
4: they have incredible sensory capabilities they have the most complicated eye in the animal kingdom they have individual recognition based on chemical cues and visual cues. I spent the last 50 years sort of looking at how animals evolved, and one of the features that's unusual about them is the ability to see circular polarized light.
0: Okay, to explain circular polarized light, we're going to have to drop some physics on you. As you may know, light is comprised of particles called photons.
2: In addition to having a wavelength and a frequency to describe the motion of a photon, some also spin as they travel in either clockwise or counterclockwise directions.
0: Think of circular polarization as two linearly polarized light waves, one horizontal and one vertical. Put together, it causes this spinning effect.
1: The only way humans can see this type of light is through special filters. In fact, very few animals that we know of can actually see this type of light. Just a few beetle species
2: and shrimp. But what does the fact that a mantis shrimp can see this type of light have to do with mating?
0: Apparently, mantis shrimp don't only see circular polarized light.
4: And they also produce it. The males have a large keel, or almost a sail-like shape, on the telson, And it's about three times larger than the females. And it, it uh, reflects circular polarized light. Since the are is the only animal that can see it, and the only animal that probably produces it, It's probably the most private communication system known in the animal kingdom. And we think it's involved in signaling, uh, I'm a male, I'm a female.
1: That sort of communication is very helpful for mantis shrimp to find a mate in the wild. I mean, imagine looking across the coral reef and seeing a light that only you can see. Like, hey,
2: how you doing? So, who's up next?
5: My name is Amanda Vincent, and I'm a professor in the Institute for the Oceans and Fisheries, at the University of British Columbia. I also direct a marine conservation team called Project Seahorse.
0: Awesome! I love seahorses!
5: Seahorses are these, these super funky fishes. They have this head of a horse, and they have a tail that's like a monkey and can grasp things. They have no teeth and no stomachs, but they're voracious predators. They they suck all sorts of tiny organisms as they're passing, tiny animals. And then they have this crazy reproduction where only the male gets pregnant.
0: Wait, the males get pregnant?
5: Yes, indeed. In fact,
2: the family Cygnathidae is one of the only species that will carry a brood pouch to term. A really cool aspect of seahorse mating is that every day they engage in a sort of dance.
0: Like underwater pirouettes and patabourette. Then they have this
5: complete ballet. And then eventually the two of them rise through the water column and the female inserts an egg depositor, like a penis equivalent, into the opening in the male's brood pouch, and she transfers the eggs over in an intimate locking, and the sperm are added at the same time so that the male really knows he's the father. That's probably one of the reasons why male seahorses are prepared to invest so much in their brood and go through a full pregnancy because they're really confident that they're the father of these babies. But wait, there's more. What I'd overlooked or nobody had realized was that seahorses form permanent pair bonds. The male and the female dance together every morning and are together for many, many months, even many years. So the only competition for mates happens right at the beginning of the season when nobody's been reproducing. And in fact, the males still are more competitive to get their mates at that time than the females
0: are. Please let me carry your eggs. Let's mate for life.
2: But only if you show us your awesome dance moves first, Andrew. So, between tender lobster lovers, eye
1: catching mantis shrimp soirees, and sauntering seahorses, I think that's quite enough excitement for today.
0: Just keep in mind there is much, much, much more in store in our Ocean Lovin' series. Big thanks to our guests for this episode, and big thanks to you, our listeners.
2: Be sure to catch the next episode of Ocean Ocean Science Science Radio. Radio.
1: Loving me some, oh, she loving. I can't believe we're doing a whole series about this. The puns will be never ending.